Good afternoon, universe, and welcome to Cross Defense, your weekly dose of knowing why you believe what you believe so that you will be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks about that hope that you have and the totality of who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, and what Jesus is coming again to do. I'm your host, Reverend Jonathan Fisk, and together we are on a journey through the landmark Christian dogmatics of Dr. Francis Pieper, a monumental series of books devoted to the belief that when God speaks, he does so in order that we speak his word back to him. That sound doctrine is not just a set of right answers to be put on a shelf, but the effect that happens when scripture alone, grace alone, and faith alone point us ever to Christ alone and meets real life as the answer, the salve we so desperately need in this age of darkness and this veil of tears. St. Paul exhorts all Christians to hunger for the truth, to watch your life and doctrine closely, to persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourselves and your hearers. For the time is coming, he warns, when people will not put up with sound doctrine, but instead will turn aside to suit their own desires, gathering around them a great number of teachers to teach what their itching ears want to hear. You, however, Christian, must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught. And so encourage others. I have as guests with me today two brothers in arms, both from uh, uh, the the Midwest, one from almost where I was a while back, uh, not quite North Dakota, Pastor Samuel Bobby of St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Aberdeen, South Dakota, and uh, Pastor Michael Brown, Associate Pastor of Redeemer Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. Yeah, you got a good group of guys down there in Nebraska from what I hear. We do, we do. Um, my church is uh, in the English district, but uh, we uh, caucus with the uh, Nebraska folks and participate in their circuits, and it's it's a joy to be down here. So how did you know, you know, uh, Pastor Bobby? Pastor Bobby has recommended you to kind of be part of our conversation, and I'm curious what your guys' story is. Yeah, I know uh, Bobby from our first class we took together at uh, St. Louis. So I've just been riding uh, Bobby's coattails ever since. What can I say? <laughs> right. Yeah, right. <laughs> what class was that, Pastor Bobby? Do you remember? Yeah, it was Velta's uh, introduction to Greek. Did he still wear like the military hat and like throw his shoes across the room and do all that stuff? Oh, what? yeah. He's we had awesome. wine tasting. Yeah, we did all kinds of stuff, man. He, he threw a brick. You remember that? He had a brick. Yeah. <laughs> I do remember that. For the listener who doesn't know, Pastor James Veltz has been a longtime staple of uh, Concordia Seminary in St. Louis. Uh, he was also at Concordia Seminary in Fort Wayne for a little while, and he's written a Greek textbook. And so he's got this uh, well unique style to his his teaching in the classroom. Yeah, we're gonna dig into Peeper here, and he is he's talking about religion again. And uh, this is, I think, the second time we're we're digging into the topic of. How many religions are there? What is religion? Uh, how mankind, when we try to answer that question of what is religion, we come up with, well, pretty much the same answer, but never the right answer. And, and then, in that sense, running into this common question that's on the street today, this average thought that all religions are kind of the same and, and they all are leading to the same place. Pieper really disagrees pretty strongly with that. He says... There are not a thousand different religions, not four, but only two essentially different religions. And then he defines them as the religion of the law and the religion of the gospel. Now, someone might say, that's pretty extreme. I mean, how can he be so bold, so arrogant as to sum up all the religions of the world in just two religions? 
Well, that's kind of the point that he's, I mean, that's the whole point of what he's saying, though. I think that's a difficulty for most modern hearers because most modern hearers aren't going to be examining, like he'll go on to talk about the relationship. Okay, so what exactly are we talking about within this category of uh, religion? And um, if you start looking at what the doctrines that a particular religion espouses, well, then this distinction becomes clear. But I think if you if you try to keep it at that kind of all-encompassing kind of wide tent kind of a level, well, yeah, you're going to see this as saying, well, boy, that's that's you can't make that claim. You know, he'll go on to talk about uh, the nature of relationships between God and man, and um, and that's where a lot of that will start to come out. It's a false premise that's being set forward that none of the religions of the world or they're all the same or they're all um, kind of coming or teaching the same thing. When, I mean, when you look at the religions of the world, they don't even claim that. Islam would be totally opposed to that. First century Judaism had a problem with Christianity. Buddhism was rejected by Hinduism because they rejected the, the Vedas. I mean, so, I mean, they're... Every religion has an exclusive claim, even though that flies in the face of modern uh, folks trying to push it as otherwise. Um, something that caught my attention um, just watching the news is I used to live in D.C. And one time years ago, maybe uh, 16, 17 years ago, I went to the Christmas tree lighting. And uh, this year, uh, Obama was speaking and he was speaking about how uh, the Christmas message, and he even brought Jesus into it. And he said Christmas is about um, caring for one another. He talked about the poor. He talked about uh, loving even our enemies. And he said that that uh, grounds his Christian faith. And he went on to say that that grounds Jewish Americans' faith and Muslim Americans' faith and non-believers, completely missing you know, what the Savior came into the world to do. You know, there's a great example of just taking this idea that in many ways all religions are the same and working towards the same end. Right. Well, and that's where he he really, even as he did that, I I didn't see this, I'm just going with your example, but he's doing exactly what Pieper is saying all religions eventually must do if they're not Christianity, well, as the Bible teaches it, which is that it comes down to being about whether or not you're a good person, how you're going to treat other people. Uh, And in that sense, he calls it now at this point a religion of the law, a religion of works, a religion of of what you do. And so no matter what the surface area of of the religion is, whether you have the Vedas, whether you have uh, which statues you have or or which statues you don't have and refuse to have, none of that really matters. That's all tangential. That's all uh, skin deep. When you dig down to the, the soul of the religion, you find one of two things. You find you better be a better person or you find a dead man hanging on a cross. But that's going to be a struggle for, I think, a lot of people to wrap their minds up because of this exclusivity issue. I think if you were to put this as just a bold face kind of, I don't know, on a sign for your church sign, I mean, a lot of people would just be struck by it. And I think it's because it's the exclusivity of what he's saying it's, it's not even a problem that people have necessarily with the exclusivity of religion. I mean, it's the problem that people have with exclusivity just in general. Um, and this is where if you can just kind of get this nice broad category of good, you know, you can kind of s- just soothe with everybody's consciences and get everybody saying, okay, I can look in the mirror and, and self-justify myself. But the reality is um, we as a, as a culture, especially popular culture, I mean, exclusivity is a bad word. Um, whether you're talking about 
um, religion or anything else. And so I think I think that's uh, I think part of the reason why in this particular, like he says, people want to make the move. Okay, if we do have to self-justify, if my option is the law, let's broaden that law so much that it encompasses everybody. And so I mean, if you're going to do works, do it at such a point where you can't exclude anybody from that. But I guess you know this exclusivity that that he kind of puts forward here, which I think is absolutely correct. I mean, either it does come down to Jesus or it comes to, you know, somehow making yourself out uh, to be a good person. The the struggle with this uh, exclusivity is not just a struggle with even religion, it's just a, a struggle with even trying to admit that there might be a truth whereby you're accountable to it. It's the scandal of particularity, I think, has been called at other times, that it is so unique uh, so diverse, even you might say, so individually focused on this one body hanging on one cross at one time in history, that for us or those who are not already in that group or in that body, it's offensive. Uh, how dare you say that this one body is the only way to worship God? How dare you say that this one man's words are the only words from God? If you say that, you thereby are saying that I'm not I'm not with God. And I think where people get offended is they're assuming that we're saying it because we think we're with God because of something that we did. And somehow I've like got the, the lock on God on my own, as opposed to really the first claim of Christianity is that nobody has a lock on God except for this one man. Nobody is pleasing to God except for this one man. Nobody's good enough for God except for this one man. And he's hanging on a cross. It's crazy, actually. But I think in many ways, you know, this exclusivity uh, claim, I mean, it, it comes from Jesus. Um, you know, you look back into the gospel, um, there are people who either are following Jesus and trusting in Jesus, or there are people who are um, against him. And he even tells his disciples what, um, when they're rejected, go and chase after them further. He tells them, dust your sandals off and, and move on. And um, so I think and then, you know, you read Paul, you read, you know, the intro to Galatians. Um, I mean, the exclusivity of claim of uh, Christianity, um, it might be offensive to modern hearers, might have been offensive to first century Greeks and Romans um, who had a, a pantheon of gods. But um, um, it's always been an exclusive claim. So in that way, it's, it's nothing new. But maybe that doesn't take the edge off it. Maybe we need to be offended, though. I mean, in an age where everybody basically says, I need my safe space, go away, let me, you know, stick my head in a, in a hole in the corner and pretend the world isn't ending. Maybe what we need is a, is a swift kick in the rear, right? A, a, a mirror that shows us how ugly we actually are. Because if we don't have that, I mean, it's, it's kind of like any any business or any organization that it can tell itself a story for a long time about how great it is and how everything's fine and the one day the money runs out and it all collapses right how much better to be open and honest brutally honest about the reality that we face in order to find the antidote in order to find the answer and the reality that we face as humanity is that we're we're doomed right we're self doomed and god is saying look i'm calling you out on this so that you wake up and stop doing you know what this next quote here the religion of the law that is the endeavor to reconcile to ourselves to God through our works. He wants us to stop doing that, to stop thinking we're going to build a tower that gets up to heaven, to stop thinking we're going to we're going to grow some spirituality from the dark core of my soul that somehow transforms me into a butterfly of light. And I, stop doing it, guys. Let me tell you how I'm going to save you. 
But but isn't that the other scandal that we're talking about? I mean, that is the scandal of the cross. I mean, because what the cross shows us is that there is nothing that we can do. And that's what the prominence of the law and every other religion testifies, our desire to have sinful control so that we can achieve our own salvation, even if it's not even reconciliation with God and it's just the achievement of our own kind of deluded notions of utopia. But it is a testament to our sinfulness, but also our desire in some sense to have meaning beyond ourselves, to like have kind of a, a, a God. But you look at the cross, and the cross just destroys all of that. Yeah, it destroys you on it. <laughs> you yeah, know? exactly. Yeah, 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 exactly. But I mean, but that's, uh, I think, you know, you have these these two juxtaposed. I mean, people will choose the law every time. As sinners, we will choose the law every time as an opportunity for us to assert ourselves over, you know, on our knees saying, Lord, have mercy on me, because that's that's an open admission that there's nothing we can do. That's a phrase that, that uh, Peeper's already brought up in a former section. He'll bring it up again in the pages which follow, which is this opinio legis, the, the opinion of the law, uh, really a definition of original sin in some ways, that, that mankind's native position is to believe the answer to all our problems is more of me. More of what I do, and this That's is awesome. yeah, right. And this is what Adam <laughs> did, though, right? He chose to try to create a goodness better than the one God gave him, and as a result, right. what's he do? He creates evil. And God's com- people continue doing that. Like you have uh, all that famous verse from uh, Judges, I think Judges seventeen, that people did what was right in their own eyes. Yep. And I think I think you see that today, especially with maybe folks who are. Um, you know, just out there on their own, agnostics, they do what is right in their own eyes. And um, whether or not they're working with our concepts of sin and law and gospel, I mean, they're they're definitely working within the law um, to create those own their own self-reality. Obviously, it doesn't get them anywhere good. It's something you hear often enough, I think. You know, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. And, and the individual who says this thinks they're being really creative, right? Like, they just came up with this on their own. No one's ever said it before. They're they're trailblazing out into new territory, but all they end up doing is coming back to uh, what Obama had summarized for us so well. I'm just going to be a really nice person and do my best, based on what I think niceness is, by the way, not based on any actual standard. And somehow this will all work out in the end. And it's not clever. It's not unique. It is the religion of the law, the universal religion that ties together all false religion. Sad. Well, it, it is sad. But I think what's probably maybe a little bit more frightening is that you see a lot of people in the pews functioning with the same kind of view. And what I mean by that is even though they'll, they're, you know, how would you want to say this? I mean, there's a sense where they'll self-identify as a Christian, which is something that's very popular in our culture to do is to self-identify. Uh, nevertheless, uh, the opinion of themselves is pretty high because they have given themselves, um, you know, their own law by which they're doing okay, which, you know, raises the question, what does even Jesus mean in this context? But they've managed to take the Christ of the cross and kind of form him to fit that own narrative anyways. But I think it, it, it's very difficult. I think this is the goal of good preaching, obviously, and good teaching and catechesis, is to kind of to, to, to destroy those edifices of, of self-law that allows a person to stand outside of what the law is supposed to do. You mentioned good preaching and good teaching, but I, I you know, I got to wonder, too, isn't that what parenting as a Christian is supposed to be about? Mm-hmm. 
right? We think mm-hmm. parenting is about making good people, uh, successful people, re- rich people, frankly, you know, educated and rich. That's the real goal we have. And you got to cheer for the same sports team as dad does. Otherwise, as long as you're happy, right? And yet the, the real goal of the parent in God's eyes is precisely to teach the child to see their own sin, and therefore their own need. And and how easy is this to hap- to do, or is it even possible in some ways? I think about the uh, in our in our hymnals, in our liturgy, we have several different ways of confessing our sin at the start of the service. The old one, uh, I am a poor, miserable sinner. I think most, uh, your average Lutheran in the pew has no problem saying, I'm a sinner, whether or not we, we really feel it or not, it's another thing. But then, I'm not poor, and generally speaking, I'm not miserable. Yeah, I, I'm I'm pretty well off, and I'm I'm doing okay today. I got my coffee, I got my nice air conditioned car, or heated if you're in South Dakota, on the way to the way to church, and uh, and uh, I'm doing okay, right? And I'm a sinner, yeah, 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 okay, but I got a game to get to, right? I mean, how how much is our oh, man our situation just a hindrance to then teaching our children to hear those words? It's interesting you bring it up because I never really thought about it like that, but I think oftentimes this image of success that is kind of projected onto kids and what they're raised up in. I never thought about this, but I mean, you talked earlier about the opinion of the law, like we set up new laws. That's what Adam and Eve did. We can do this better. And the parents might not see themselves as doing this, but they've adopted this other kind of way of justification. Like, here's how you can be what you're supposed to be by being rich and successful. But I mean, you're basically setting up for this edifice of bondage. And what's what's kind of terrible is that it's very difficult for a person who has been raised in that since the primacy of the parents is so important in their modeling that, you know, that is going to be, I don't know how you want to put it like, but a, 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 a spiritual kind of bondage that, that that's, I never thought of it like that, but that's pretty intense, you know, and boy, you mess it up at that level. You're really, really doing harm to your child spiritually. I think about it with even like the, the common question that anyone asks my children when they run into them, it's not a, it's not an evil question, so so don't misunderstand this, but what are you going to do when you grow up is kind of the oh, thing that like the yeah. five-year-old's supposed to answer, right? And, and how much that is part of this assumed yeah. belief system that life is about growing old enough to become a worker in the economic system and, and, and pay for your food. Right, and that—that's really the ultimate goal. Not—not uh, not what do you like, not what you do today, but—but but this uh, again assumed growth pattern unto whatever our American dream is. And I—I I don't want to smash the American dream. I love my freedoms. I love the fact that my my standard of living is higher than than it would be if I'd been born into the the you know the the ghettos of some other right. uh, third world country. But. I mean, it's in the water, these assumptions that we don't question whether or not our kids are going to go to, go to college, generally speaking. But it's, a, it's an open question whether they'll be in church in their 20s. Another, another aspect that, you know, I see in the pews is, um, you know, it's, it's almost like talk about a bondage of parenting or something like this, that, you know, you're not a good parent if your kids aren't involved in all these different activities um, so, so you see kids who are kind of overscheduled and I think in that model, going to church is just another one of the things instead of being the primary, um, identity and as a new creation in Christ, um, and having maybe, uh, 
a priority that um, or a something that permeates everything else you do. Um, and there's more a fear of you're not giving your children, exposing them to all these great things that we're uh, blessed with in this country that aren't evil, like you said, but um, that uh, parents kind of become that maybe that's their primary um, worry is uh, that uh, their kids aren't getting all these uh, blessings and maybe will get short shrift is things just like having devotions with your kids and, um, you know, doing, doing things where uh, um, you're prioritizing, um, I don't know, God's gifts in your life. Not to be overly legalistic or, or overly pious, but it gets back to what, the uh, what we were talking about earlier, in a sense, with the spirituality versus religion thing is, is Christianity part of what you do? Something that you know, sort of, is a, a hobby in your life. Something that's around. It's good. It's useful. It's valuable. Or is it your religion? Right? Uh, is this your God? Yeah, uh, and your connection to that reality. And and if if your kids or our kids, I should include myself in this, if they don't know that this is the thing I'm willing to die for, I'm not willing to die for my kids to go to college. I'm willing to die for my kids to believe in who Jesus is and what He's done. To pass that thinking on to them is to is to have more than just sort of a small s spirituality, but what I would I would call a holy big S spirituality. You're listening to Cross Defense on Worldwide KFUO. I have with me as guest today, Pastor Samuel Bobby of St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Aberdeen, South Dakota, Pastor Michael Brown, Associate Pastor of Redeemer Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. We're, we're riffing on Francis Paper and the distinction between all the religions of the world and that scandalous only true religion, Christianity. We'll be back after this break. Welcome back to Cross Defense on Worldwide KFUO, the messenger of good news. I'm your host, Pastor Jonathan Fisk, talking with Pastor Michael Brown, Pastor Samuel Bobby, about the distinction between all religions of the world that teach the exact same thing, which is the law, and the unique, scandalously unique, Christianity that teaches this thing called the gospel. And Pieper calls the religion of the gospel faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, belief wrought through the gospel by the Holy Ghost that we have a gracious God through the reconciliation already affected by Christ. And he's, he's certainly building there on, when he says reconciliation, this idea of the vicarious atonement that Jesus stood on the cross, well, not literally, but you know, effectively, mm-hmm. between us and God. So God's wrath is poured literally into Jesus instead of on to you, and that the result of this is now God is positively dispositioned toward you in Jesus, and he's not anywhere else. He doesn't just love you just because, right? He loves you through the cross of Jesus. Yeah, what's what's interesting about this is, you know, we were talking earlier about parents and kids and big-ass spirituality. I mean, what's there not to love uh, about this gospel message? I mean, it's such a wonderful message of grace and mercy on behalf of God for us as his people. But once again, you know, like it always says, it's not something that you can do. And that's how people ends that line, not because of your own good works. And that's the part that people have a hard time coming to terms with, hard pill to swallow. I think what you said, uh, Jonathan, earlier uh, in just your, your intro there about 
it's not a willy nilly love that God loves you just uh, because I think um, I see that I, I hear that that uh, you know so you have that from what is it First John God is love right and it's true yes God is love but God also does hate and just just throwing around this God is love and not seeing that love as primarily revealed in a God who sends his only son to die for the forgiveness of your sins. Um, that, that's, a, that's a problem I think we can get into not qualifying or pointing to where that love is most shown to us. And God is love how and God is love where, right? The, uh, one of the, if, you, if you go with the kind of the, the classic arguments for God's existence, and we borrow this a bit from the Greeks, but I think most of it is biblical, but it's, the idea is that God's attributes are eternal. So whatever God is, he always is. He never changes. He's always the same God. He doesn't grow. He doesn't shrink, any of that stuff. He's just constantly that. And so that means that because, and we know this, right? This is just, is, it's permanently true. Because God hates evil, God is permanently hate as well as love, but it's hating what, right? E- evil, bad stuff, pain, <laughs> suffering, death, lies, right? He permanently and forever abhors these things and thank God for it. We love these things sometimes and that's our problem. That's what's wrong with the world. Not that God is is hate eternally for evil, but that we love evil. The amazing thing is that being evil as we are, God like shoves his hate again into Jesus to crush Jesus in our place so that all that remains his love of good flows over onto us. And that is, you forget the scandal, the miracle, the, the just unbelievable mercy that that demonstrates on God's part, that while he is eternally both love and hate properly placed, the love predominates, or as Walt used to say, the gospel predominates. It's, it's his proper work, whereas hate would be his alien work. I think that's a little Luther there, too. You know, you hear that term, though. You hear that term, hate, and that carries such connotations in our in our culture. I mean, that's what nobody wants to be. Nobody wants to be a hater. Nobody wants to be associated with anything in terms of hate, even if it's hate evil. And plus that, you know, you talk about people loving evil. Well, people just confused about love in general, like Michael was pointing out. But when you talk about loving evil, I mean, people do not understand, I think, the depths of that. And so the cross itself, in terms of exactly what God does and how he reveals his love, I think a lot of that power is lost because of people's inability to kind of just conceive of what love of evil is and what it looks like. Yeah, and you see, um, I think another thing, you know, this idea that love, the love of God is so powerful that he would come and uh, be incarnate and come and die for uh, his creation, which had fallen, um, you don't see that when you look at other religions who might believe that there's a God or a spirit who has love, but then he, what? In uh, Islam, you say your five prayers every day, and maybe Allah, who is merciful and compassionate, he'll see when you die, um, and you'll find out whether or not uh, uh, you measured up. Or, you know, same thing in Hinduism with their... There are different types of yoga that uh, that get you saved, or Buddhism, achieving moksha. I mean, all these ways, uh, they might posit a loving being, but it's not a love that reaches out and down to um, the creatures that he created in order to save them. Um, he leaves he leaves it up to the folks to do the best they can, and uh, and there you got. Um, his distinction that he's making. That's a fascinating thought that in that he, 
they they say God is love, but this love stands aloof from darkness, aloof from evil, and only condescends to love that which is already good, right? And what kind of love is that? Uh, what good is it to you if you only do good to those who do good to you? Even the pagans do that, Paul says. Well, that's what we're talking about, right? But that God's wow. love does good to the one who does evil to him. And, and just it's so radically different from what the rest of the world's religions can even conceive of or imagine. Which just reinforces his you know, distinction between there's only two religions, right. you know, law and gospel. He's got this next point, too, which is like, you know, and for Christians to not see this is amazing, right? Is effectively what he's saying. How can—and this is the age he was living in, the age we live in, too, really, where there are Christians who do say, I believe in Jesus. He's my God. I believe in the Trinitarian faith. I believe Jesus rose from the dead. But that doesn't mean Jesus is the only way to God. Jesus is the only path to heaven. But but the very existence of Christianity, its very establishment— sets itself over and against the rest of the world. He says this is apparent from the divine or scripture-given mission of the Christian religion to displace all other religions. And he points to Matthew chapter 28, disciple all nations is certainly universal and exclusive. And so Jesus, risen from the dead, says, hey guys, go teach everybody this. And by definition of him saying, go teach everybody this, he's saying they're wrong. (laughs) Before you get there, they don't have this and they're outside of the light. Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting kind of uh, thought that he develops right there. But he's absolutely right. Um, you know, and I mean, this takes it back to the exclusivity issue. It, you know, people are amazed that, you know, like this is some sort of, some sort of arrogance on the part of Christianity or, or even more specifically arrogance on the part of like the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. But this is just kind of built in, isn't it? I mean, anytime you claim something is true, you are inherently at that same time saying that other things are false. And so what Peeper is saying here, and the fact that this is reflected in Scripture and Jesus' own mission, I mean, shouldn't be that big of a surprise. Yet when it's heard, it's it, it seems um, uh, scandalous and out of place. But it's absolutely correct. Hey, you only This is even Aristotle gets this. You know that something is what it is because it's not some other thing. And that, that might sound really fancy. But you know an apple's not an orange, you know an orange is not an apple. There's a difference. And the, the value in both of them comes from them not being the same thing, right? And so truth always works that way. We live in an age which is trying to remove all those labels, I think they call them, right? So you can't call it an apple. You can't call it an orange. you got to say they're all fruit and, and then live in this really bland, truthless, squishy place, which ends up, now we're going to move out of apples and oranges and into, into religion again, ends up being this incessant ladder that we have to climb of trying to love without a definition of what love is, which can either lead only to pride or, or to despair, ultimately. That's part of the issue that you have when you, when you start um, looking at the universality of, uh, of all these uh, different religions. You, you, you try to get it back in. Well, well let me rephrase this. Um, people want to say, okay, we're all, we're all going to the same place. We're going to kind of get these distinctions out of here. But the reality is, and you were pointing this out, it's still always going to come back to the law. Because by which law are you taking the distinctions out? And this is this is the double standard and the prevarication that so many people who approach religion from this position that people is describing that they use, right? They're able to be critical all the time of other religions because of their exclusive claims. Nevertheless, as soon as you try to hold them accountable for the exclusivity by which they're 
you know, picking who's in and who's out or why you should even listen to why everybody's in, uh, they don't have to take responsibility for that. And, and so you see that going on a, a lot. But the reality is the person who's trying to say there is no distinction is still going to use some sort of distinction to make that claim. And, and so this idea that you're going to somehow objectively step outside of this process to really critique Christianity for once and for all, a lot of people buy into that not seeing that. Boy, it's kind of a dumb position. You're um you're making a, an exclusive claim in in claiming that, or you're to say something. It's like it's using an absolute to say there's no absolutes. I mean, it it, it just doesn't it doesn't work, and it's kind of a it's a ridiculous position to have. I'm I'm not religious. I'm spiritual, and so therefore I make the exclusive claim that all exclusive claims to religion are wrong, but not my exclusive claim because you're not allowed to ask me that question. Uh, many ways, looking into antiquity, you might have a polytheistic notions of are there different gods and maybe you could put uh, the Jewish pantheon in with the Roman one in the ancient world and somehow try to make that work. But is there an example, I, I guess, from before modern times where there's totally different religions that you can look at as being the same? I, I just can't think of how I've seen that before, maybe uh, maybe the past couple hundred years or something. The, the idea that there are many religions and they all kind of work, definitely that was an ancient understanding. They were like blob-like in their ability to just attach other religions to their own. But they didn't really deny the exclusivity of, say, the little river god that, that you worship. They're like, oh yeah, that god's fine. It, it does its thing too, right? It wasn't like, no, no, you're all trying to get to the exact same god who's just one big windy unique itselfness, right? I would say that we have to probably make a distinction between the pluralism that you saw in the ancient world and the claims that are being made now. The claims that I think Pieper is dealing with and which we typically hear that says all religions are the same are based upon a materialistic worldview. And you did see uh, materialism in the ancient world with Epicureanism and, and that kind of thing. Uh, nevertheless, you wouldn't have saw the kind of prevarication that would allow you to take that uh, materialism all the way to the end whereby it would kind of stand in this objective place where itself would not become um, part of the universe that it's itself critiquing. And all I'm trying to say is that, back to what Pieper was saying, <clears throat> you can try to make these modern claims that everyone's going to the same place, but you're still leaving people in the law. Yeah. It's darkness. Yeah. And it, where, where does that leave you? It, not even with a law. It's just, you're just left dying. Right? You're just left with rust and moth and bad weather and beasts that eat us. That's what you're left with at that point. And we can Not, hide from it right now in our buildings, but it's still going to catch up in the nursing home. Well, and I think that's why it would behoove us as pastors, at least this is what I try to do, when I see those types of materialistic assumptions being brought up by people, and I mean, just obviously they're not saying, well, here, let's parade our presuppositions out and see what you think, pastor. I mean, they're just talking. But when you hear those comes out, I label those for what they are. They're religious claims. They're pagan religious claims. If you're going to use the language of Peeper, and you just need to call it what it is and call out the inconsistencies and the double standards that they're using. But bringing it back to the law lets you segue into the gospel. And that's what those people ultimately need to hear. So that's that's what Peeper's doing here with this, this, this quote, all others, all the religions leave man in darkness and in the power of Satan, right? And so what you're saying is we just need to like, 
well, maybe not with those words quite, but when you're in the conversation with somebody, kind of bring it back to like, look, you're in sadness right now. You're in a very depressed place. Christianity is designed to open your eyes and to turn you from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that we might receive forgiveness. You you did bring that up earlier in that that Jesus and, and he, the love that God gives us does have a how and a where. And when you start talking about the how and the where, man, you're right at forgiveness of sins for you in the divine service. Which brings you back to what um, Pieper quotes, basically the Great Commission. That's what we're, these people are caught in the law. And so that's, that's what we're given to do is to go out and to proclaim the gospel into that darkness and into that place of death. I love this, this quote I skipped over because it's just so offensive that Christianity denies the right of existence to all other religions because only the Christian religion has saving power. And in, in our day and age, you got to be careful. This is not the way that Islam denies the right of existence to other religions, which is by the sword, right? Like, like you don't have a right to have that religion, we're going to kill you. Christianity doesn't do that. But it denies the truth claims of all others and basically says you're not really a religion, uh, not in the sense of having real gods. You are a demonic lie that is keeping men and women bound in chains of darkness until the day of destruction. And Christianity comes along and says, I deny your right to be true. I replace your untruth with real truth. In fact, I absolve <laughs> uh, your your untruth yeah. away. And that's what I think that's the important point. When it says that it's going to, you know, kind of exclude all the other religions, it does that by the power of the cross. The language that Pieper here is using is one that whereby you have two religions, law and gospel, and gospel being the truly religions. It is the very nature and the profundity of God's love in Christ that excludes the other. Who can hold a candle to that? They're all law. They are self-excluded by their inability to do what Christ has done for us. So then Pieper gets into this idea of natural man. Uh, it's not really his word, but he'll use this word at other places. But he's describing what the human of inborn pagan religion believes at the heart when when you just are born into this and this is that the natural man does not want to put christianity and all other religions into opposition into these essentially two different classes natural man wants to believe we're all the same so that it can it can justify itself and say you know well we're all in the same boat we'll work out as best we can so the result is that natural man searches for a universal idea of religion one that's so wide and all embracing that it incorporates both the heathen and the christian into one class I'm still continuing the quote but if these definitions are closely examined it is clear that men are using a common name to designate entirely different things. That is, they redefine the word religion until they can dismiss it, basically. Until we can fit, it used to mean one thing, but now we're going to redefine it till it means what we want it to mean so that we can reject it and just say there is no difference between the religions. And as a result, they expediently ignore the essence of Christian religion. They, they re reject this grace, this this gospel, which is our only reason for existence. They, they turn Christianity into some sort of pious do-gooding, and I'm not against good deeds. I think it's really good to do good things and not bad things, but that's not what made me a Christian. It's not why I worship Jesus. I worship Jesus because he exclusively atoned for the sins of the world. I, I think you see it playing out. I think it's uh, in Acts, I think maybe chapter 17, right? Paul uses this when he's in Athens, right, and finding the altar to the unknown God. Um, and he uses that and maybe this idea of, you know, maybe there aren't as many distinctions between gods, at least in his case, as an end to proclaim the exclusivity of the gospel to the people. 
and they take him up on Mars Hill, right? And he makes an exclusive claim about uh, death and resurrection. And at, the, at a certain point, they, they cut him off. Maybe this is a in for us, too, in that, at least in this environment, people are maybe more willing to listen in the sense that if they believe that they're all the same, they might be more willing to listen to your proclamation. That might indeed be exclusive, but at least maybe in this environment, it gives us a little bit more in into people's lives if they're you know, willing to listen. You, we as pastors listen to how people talk, and I think we're always listening because when we recognize that when people are talking to us, they're telling us a lot more than what they actually think they're telling us. Um, because if you listen to a person, it, it's it's kind of like a poker game. I'm terrible at poker. Um, but, you know, people are kind of dipping their theological hands by letting you know um, what their values are, what things they like, what things they don't like. And, and you can tell when a person talks, like, okay, where is this all coming from and where is it all going to? And, and what Peeper is pointing out here is that words actually matter. How you talk actually matters. Definitions actually matter. Because when you, if you were to grant the definition of religion to somebody who's using it in the way that Peeper is showing here, you're going to be, you're, I mean, it, it's going to end in uh, so far away from the gospel that you, you won't even see it. Yeah, Pastor Sean Danzer, who's another guest we've had on Cross Defense, uh, uh, he said the problem with pastors is that we're so stinking weird. We think the words that we say matter. Right, we we walk around as if these this babbling actually means something. Then we take other people at their word, and it, in our age, increasingly, no one takes anyone at their words. Right, words have become these wax noses that kind of can bend or move however we want them to to go. Uh, what seems to be more important is the emotion people put behind the words and the words themselves, or or how I feel about the words I would use. But it, I don't I don't think he's. I think Pastor Danzer is right. I think it's broader than just pastors in the sense that Christianity is a religion of the logos, the word, right? And and that means uh, the truth, the reality, uh, the things that can be touched, seen, confessed, repeated. Uh, and so Christians should stand out and be weird precisely because we think that what we say matters and what other people say matters, whether it's true or false, and it should be assessed by what God has actually said, which is most certainly true. Well, and, and I think we, there's a, a kind of double urgency to that and that you see, one, we're in a media-saturated kind of a culture, and, and that culture moves in a direction completely contrary um, to God's Word. And I think because of that, especially, I don't know, in, in America at least, where you have, you know, um, the kind of uh, context you have here, I mean, people are, you, you have to listen, you have to be able to, to, on some level, take those words seriously, not because it's some sort of law that you have to do, but just because you are going to be constantly bombarded by words that are contrary, hostile, undermine who you are in Christ, your baptismal promises, and it's just really attack on the faith. And that's where, I mean, even if you say, I don't think words matter, they do, and even if you say they don't have meaning, well, we're using them for some reason, and then you have internet, radio, television, movies, perhaps blaring words at you uh, right. 24 hours a day, uh, giving you something to think. I think Luther says this as well. He says, you know, the, the devil just, he says, don't listen to God's word, but listen to mine. And then he fills the world with his words. He says, you can't really trust what God says. It doesn't have any meaning anyway. But then he keeps talking, right? He, he keeps mm -hmm. filling the world with things that he has said, but they're all 
well, they're all deceptive. And, and then, so again, getting back to the 24-hour day media cycle, is that whether or not you think they have any meaning, they are affecting you. What's going in is going to form who you are. Do you remember there was like this, uh, uh, not conjunction, junction, but this thing, when at least when I was a kid, on Saturday morning cartoons, where they would have uh, various little lessons they would teach you. And one of them was, you are what you eat from your head down to your feet. And it showed you, you know, becoming either junk food or, or broccoli or whatever. But it, that's, that's doubly true of the media, the, the information that you consume, whatever words are going in, are going to form you. And, and we're not strong enough to stand against this. I can't just go out there and be barraged by lies forever with no truth to counteract it and stand on my own. Eventually, I'm going to get bent by these words. That's yeah. one of the most important reasons why uh, to be in a place where you're receiving God's gifts on a weekly basis is because that's where the word is uh, spoken into your ears and placed on your lips and um, you're washed clean. And it's, it's, uh, and what? That's just an hour of each week. So uh, it's important to uh, find uh, the time, especially as parents uh, throughout the week, especially on Sunday morning, to be in a place where. God's word uh, can war against and um, uh, against all the other words that they've heard in the other 160 odd hours of the week that aren't God's word. Yeah, and I think it calls on us as pastors to really be aware and hone in on what Peeper is saying here, and that is that all the other words outside of God's words are words that come from the other side. They come from Satan. I mean, he'll he'll literally say that. And so you have basically this Christianity and paganism being mingled within the idea of religion such that everybody can self-justify. And I think, you know, we have to be, as pastors, fully aware that a lot of people are going to be hearing these types of things. And because those words do have an effect on them, they're going to want to carry that in and use that to displace the authority that God's Word has on them, both in law and worse yet in terms of gospel. And I think that's just a, a, a call to pastors just to be vigilant and understand that context, which I, I think most pastors do. If you're going to eat a diet of cotton candy seven days a week, three meals a day, and you're going to say, you know what, I, I know it's bad for me, I know it's not really healthy, but I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to average this out. I'm going to take vitamins. But you only take your vitamin one day a week. How much help is that going to do you? Right? Even if you take your vitamin seven days a week, how much help is that going to do you? What you need is a really healthy diet. You're not going to be able to escape the world. You're not going to be able to go away from the blathering of the one false religion that's in all of the religions. It's in all the self-help books. It's in all the uh, the, the, the social justice chasing of we're going to make mankind rise to the new age through our good works of whatever love we decide we, we've decided to keep. You're never going to be able to hide from that. But you do have in Christianity... The antidote to it, a meat, a food that's satisfying, bread that does not perish but leads to eternal life. And if there's anything that a Christian, I think, you know, want a good work to kind of focus on doing in these gray and latter days, it's that good work of getting yourself to the place where those words are, whether that's Sunday morning, whether that's your midweek services, whether that's Bible study on Saturday morning, whether that's getting something like cross defense into your airwaves, just so you can get fed again, because it's a it's a cultural thing 
storm out there is, is a perfect storm against us. And if you're just going to stand out by yourself, you're going to be swept away. Jesus doesn't want that. He's got a ship. He's got a boat. He's got the ark to get us through this raging flood. But it's all about his words, those different words about the forgiveness of sins, about the scandal of his atonement, his death for you and in your place. Those words are so necessary in our times. We got to hear them again and again and again. That's what we're all about here at Cross Defense on Worldwide KFUO, the messenger of good news. We certainly hope that you heard that good news in this last hour. I've had as my esteemed guests today, Pastor Samuel Bobby of St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Aberdeen, South Dakota, and Pastor Michael Brown, Associate Pastor of Redeemer Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. Gentlemen, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. A pleasure. Thank you. Cross Defense is underwritten for you by the Luther Academy. They also are about bringing that good news to the edges of the world, to training pastors across the, the, the globe to spread that good news and speak it clearly. You can check them out at lutheracademy.com. You can get in touch with them and let them know how much you appreciate their work, including the work of bringing Cross Defense to you, so that you will be prepared to give an answer for the hope that is within you. Again, I'm your host, Pastor Jonathan Fisk, saying until next time, preach ye the word in season and out, and rock on. Thank you.